we're going to be having a communion after the message today. And uh, so we're going to pray for our children. And they're dismissed to their classes. And teachers, you can come back up. Um, or somebody can go down again when we're about ready to close so they can come up for communion as well. Father, we thank you for our children. We thank you that we have an opportunity to pray for them. And we pray now, even now, that as we open up your word and, and we prepare our hearts for our time of communion at the close of our service, we ask that you would just use the teaching of your word in a way that only you can to convict our hearts, to edify our hearts, to build us up as the body of Christ. And Lord, we pray, bless our children as well in their Sunday school in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You can turn over in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew chapter 26. We're going to start a little short series today leading up to uh, Resurrection Sunday. And it's entitled, For Us. For Us. And we're going to start today talking about how Christ was betrayed for us. I think for us are two important words when it comes to the church. Uh, When it comes to the gospel for you and for me. Most of you uh, probably understand or at least you believe or you at least you understand You've probably heard that Jesus died for us, that he died for us. Um, That's a very important part of the gospel, that Jesus died for the church, that Jesus died for all those who would put their faith, their trust in him. But do you realize that Jesus did far more than just die for you? He did far more. He did way more than that. And as we work our way up to Resurrection Sunday, we're going to be talking about some of the things that Christ did for us. When you stop and think about it, every pain that he endured, every abandonment that he experienced, every evil that he suffered, every battle that he fought, every victory that he won, he did for us. He did for us. Obviously, he didn't need to do it for himself. (laughs) He was God. He was completely sufficient in and of himself. He did all those things for you and for me to secure our salvation. He did something for us that we could not do for ourselves, the Bible tells us. But we needed it to be done. Uh, We wanted it to be done. But we couldn't accomplish it on our own. We couldn't accomplish it in and of ourselves. And he said, you know what? I'm going to come down. I'm going to take on a human body. And I'm going to do what you need to be done. Because you can't do it. I'm going to do it for you. This is the heart of the gospel message. This is the heart of what we teach and preach about. The idea that Christ, the Lord Jesus Christ, is our substitute. He is our substitute. It's all about substitution, salvation is. He stands in our place. What should have been for us, what should have been on us as sinners, 
what we should have had to go through, he did as our substitute. If you look up the word substitute and you find some synonyms, it's not too flattering. Here are some words. Artificial. Bogus. Dummy. Factitious. Fake. False. Imitation. Sham. Simulated. Synthetic. Counterfeit. Deceptive. Phony. Misleading. See, when you think about a substitute, I mean, just think about it practically. Who likes substitutes? Sugar substitutes? I don't think so. Give me the real thing. If I'm going to do it, I'm going to get it. Coffee substitutes? I think one of the worst is dairy substitutes. Dairy substitutes. One time somebody in the fellowship hall, they they bought half and half, but it was fat-free half and half. (laughs) It's like, what in the world is that? (laughs) I can just tell you, it's a substitute for the real thing. See, substitutes in our world in which we live are not usually as good as the real thing. They just aren't. I think we can agree on that. Think of a, of a, of a sports team that you like. When the, when the leading pitcher or the leading quarterback falls ill or falls out of the game, who do they bring? They bring in the substitute. Now, there are occasions when the substitute's actually better than the leading guy, but usually that's not the case. Because generally speaking, they just can't compare to the real thing. But there is one substitute. There is one substitute that is better than all the rest. And that substitute is our substitute. That substitute is none other than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. He is far better as a substitute than we could ever be. If you think of the gospel, you can boil it down to four words. Someone asks you, what's the gospel? Here's a quick, easy way to tell them what the gospel is. Jesus in our place. Jesus in our place. He is our substitute. Listen to what John Stott said about this. He said, the concept substitution may be said then to lie at the heart of both sin and salvation. This is genius. Listen to this. For the essence of sin is man substituting himself for God. Would you agree? That's what sin is. While the essence of salvation is God substituting himself for man. He goes on. He says, man asserts himself against God and puts himself where only God deserves to be. But guess what? On the other side of that, God sacrifices himself for man and puts himself where only man deserves to be. Man claims prerogatives which belong to God alone. God accepts penalties which belong to who? To man alone. Isn't that great? It's a wonderful picture of our salvation. Well, Matthew 26, 27, and 28, we're going to see how Jesus was our substitute. And I'm hopeful and prayerful as we march toward the cross and as we march toward the empty tomb 
this year, that by Resurrection Sunday, our hearts and our minds will be so full with what Christ has done for us that we won't just be showing up for a holiday. (laughs) Easter, go to church. But because we've been traveling this road together and we've been reminded by the scriptures and we're so grateful in our hearts for the fact that all of the things that Christ went through, he did for you, he did for me, he did for us. And today we're going to talk about how Jesus was betrayed for us. He was betrayed for us. He took the betrayal on our behalf. And we so needed him to do that. Well, I'm going to read our text in Matthew chapter 26. And you can remain seated today because it's a rather lengthy reading. But Matthew 26, beginning in verse 14. And you can follow along in your Bibles. Matthew writes, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? Speaking of Christ. And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment, he sought an opportunity to betray him. Now, on the first day of the unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus saying, Where will you have us prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he said, Go into a certain and go into a city and a certain man to a certain man and say to him, the teacher says, my time is at hand. I will keep the Passover at your house with my disciples. And the disciples did as Jesus had directed them, and they prepared the Passover. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the 12. And as they were eating, he said, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. There it is. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I, Lord? And he answered, He who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had never been born. Judas who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? He said to him, You have said so. Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread and he offered, and after a blessing he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood, This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Verse 29, I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until the day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Jump down to verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve. And with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had given them a sign, saying, This is the one I will kiss. He is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once. And he said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you came to do. And they came up and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. 
Father, we thank you for your word, and we pray that you would apply this to our hearts and to our minds today. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. What an incredible event in the life and ministry of Christ. And when we read that, a lot of times we look at this passage of Scripture and we see ourselves outside of it. We just observe it as something being done. But I want to challenge you this morning. I think we're in this story. I think it relates to you and I more than just a story in the Bible. So I want to break it down into four aspects that we can get a better understanding of this whole thing as we look at what Judas has done and how it relates to you and I. As we consider these four things, first of all, I want you to notice the person he was. The person he was. Verse 14. Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot. Let's consider his name first. Judas Iscariot. In that culture, the first name was their, their name from their family. The last name usually was kind of an indicator of where they were from. It gave us insight into where this man came from. When you look at the word Iscariot, is basically means man. Kariot has reference to Kariath, which was a small little Israeli village in the southern part of Israel. Don't know exactly where it is, but they know it's in the southern part. Now, where were the disciples from? They were from Galilee. They were from up north. So immediately, you can see Judas, I thought this was kind of cool. He, he probably had a southern accent. <laughs> now, that doesn't have anything to do with what we're going to learn today, but I just thought that was cool to point that out. I mean, that should have been a telltale sign right there, right? Hey, boy, he's not speaking like any of us. But also, notice this phrase that the scripture starts off with there. One of the twelve. One of the twelve. It almost sounds redundant. It seems like, why would they put that in there? I mean, we know that he was one of the twelve. As a matter of fact, this phrase happens nine times throughout the Gospels. And guess what? Eight of those times, guess who it refers to? Judas Why would he have to point that out? I mean, they were always together. Everybody knew that he was one of the 12. It almost seems unnecessary. Why would this be so impactful? Why would the Lord, through the Holy Spirit, have the writers include this? One of the 12. Judas, one of the 12. You see it everywhere. Judas, one of the 12. Why would it be necessary? I believe it's one of the ways that the gospel writers... They're trying to emphasize something. They're trying to emphasize the shock, the horror, the surprise, the sadness of a brother, of a friend, of a co-laborer doing something like this. One of the twelve, Judas! Can you believe it? Judas, one of the twelve, he would do something like this? That's the emphasis that they want you to read into the passage. All of the things that he experienced with us, the disciples are thinking. All of the things that we went through together. 
And he did this to our Lord, to our Savior. It blew their minds. It was more really than they could even comprehend at this point. What's interesting is his first name there, Judas, literally, it literally means life of praise. Life of praise. When his parents had little Judas, the little baby, they took him to the temple and they named him, they dedicated him, and they said, we're going to name him Judas, which means life of praise. We want his life to be a life of praise to the one and only true God. But we know, in fact, now that Jesus saw a whole different side of Judas. As a matter of fact, in John chapter 17, verse 12... Jesus points this out to us. John chapter 17, verse 12. Jesus said this, While I was with them, I kept them in your name. Speaking of the twelve. Which you had given me. I have guarded them. And not one of them has been lost. Except. The son of destruction. Or the son of perdition. Some translations read. That the scripture might be fulfilled. Think about that. Instead of Judas living a life of praise, instead of being a son of praise, he became a what? A son of destruction. A son of perdition. That word in the original language basically means his life became a waste. It was wasted. It started out with such hope. But it ended in such misery. Now, I want you to understand, Jesus wasn't shocked by this. Remember, Jesus is God. God, Jesus knows everything. He wasn't shocked by what Judas did. He wasn't shocked by who Judas was. As a matter of fact, Jesus, Jesus always knew from the very beginning, even from the beginning of the foundation of the earth. He knew what his role was to be. He knew that he was going to come to earth and put on flesh. He knew that he would die an atoning death for the sins of all those who would put faith and trust in that sacrifice. Jesus always knew that he was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament promises and prophecies in the Old Testament. He knew that. Jesus also noted that he was not only the fulfillment of of the Old Testament prophecies, but also that Judas was a fulfillment of Old Testament scripture as to what he would do and who he would be, what he would do in light of the Messiah. Jesus said over in John chapter 6, verse 70, it says, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? He's talking to his disciples. Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he was one of the twelve who was going to betray him. Now think about it. Just think about this for a moment. Over three years... Of their time together. And even in the mind of Christ. Even before that you could say. But while they were here on earth together. For over three years. Jesus knew exactly. 
who Judas was. And he knew exactly what Judas was going to do. He wasn't surprised by this. And yet, he loved him. He loved Judas. He even served Judas. He cared for him. He treated him in such a way that none of the other disciples could tell the difference. There was no distinguishment between the way Jesus treated all the other disciples and Judas. When they were sitting around the Lord's Supper and Jesus is right there with him on the very last night, he says, one of you will betray me. One of you will betray me. Not one of the disciples said, oh, we know who that is. That's Judas. That snake. Look at his little squinty eyes, his thin little lips. He looks like a little weasel over there in the corner, plotting and planning this. Not one of them said that. As a matter of fact, they turned to the Lord and said, Lord, is it I? Am I the one? Is it me, Lord? And what that tells me is that Jesus treated Judas, even knowing what Judas would do to him, knowing what Judas was really like on the inside. He treated him just like he treated all the other disciples. That's amazing to me. Could you do that? (laughs) Could you have done that, knowing that someone's plotting against you? Treat them in an unbiased and loving way, knowing that that person is going to betray you into a murderous, brutal, agonizing plot for death. But see, Jesus knew all along that Judas was a fulfillment of the Old Testament scripture. And you say, well, what scriptures are those? Well, a couple are this, Psalm 41.9. Psalm 41.9. It says this, even my close friend in whom I've trusted, who ate my bread has lifted his heel against me. Another prophecy of Judas' betrayal of Jesus and the Messiah is Psalm 55. Psalm 55, verse 12. It says, For it is not an enemy who taunts me, then I could bear it. It is not my adversary who deals insolently with me, then I could hide from him. Verse, four, verse 13, but it is you, a man, my equal, my companion, my familiar friend. We used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throne. Why is this important? Why do we have to point this out? It's important because it's another aspect. It's another reason for us to understand that the word of God is true. And that we can have faith in the word of God that points us to the son of God. I mean, these prophecies were written hundreds of years before Jesus ever even showed up on earth. Hundreds of years. And what God wants us to understand is that there are hundreds, literally hundreds of these kind of prophecies throughout scripture in the Old Testament that point to Jesus as Messiah. And, and, it, and they were foretold Hundreds of years before he ever even showed up on the scene. All the way down to the details that he would even betrayed, be betrayed by a friend. In one passage in Zechariah, chapter 11, verse 13, it even gets in more detail. And it says that he would be betrayed for 30 pieces of silver. Not 29, not 31, 30. 
exactly how it happened. See, God is saying to us, beloved, that I want you to have such confidence in this word of God that it is true. That you will place your faith in the Son of God that tells that this word tells us about. That's why it's important. Jesus knew from the very beginning that he was the fulfillment of Scripture. But he also knew that Judas was the fulfillment of Scripture as well. That he would be the betrayer. The one who would hand him over to be killed. And so we see here the person that Judas was. Secondly, in verses 14 to 16, look at the deal that he made. The deal that he made. Verse 14, Matthew 26, Then one of the twelve, whose name was Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priest and said, What will you give me if I deliver him over to you? And they paid him 30 pieces of silver. And from that moment on, he sought an opportunity to betray him. When I read that, the question that pops into my mind is, Judas, what's the motive here? What are you doing? What possibly could be your motive in betraying the Son of God? Now, there's been a lot of, if you do research in this, there's a lot of theories. There's a lot of people that wonder about this and debate about this. And I'm just going to boil it down to three. And then I'll tell you what I really think his motive was. Some people say that, well, you know, Judas was just a hypocrite. He was a hypocrite. Um, He was one thing on the outside, all lovey-dovey with Jesus, doing everything he asked. And then on the inside, he was plotting to betray him. He was a hypocrite. That's what hypocrites do. So some people believe that. Some people say that other, other, other people say that he was just greedy. He was so greedy that he just wanted that 30 pieces of silver. So he thought he would betray Jesus. And we know that scripture points out to us in John chapter 12 that he was the, the treasurer of the 12. He was the one that held the money bag. He handled all the money for the disciples and for Jesus' ministry. And he embezzled some for himself, took a little on the side here and there. It tells us that in John chapter 12, verses 4 and 6. But Judas Iscariot, one of the twelve, who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? Remember when they were anointing his feet? And Jesus said, What a waste! We could have taken this and sold it and had 300 bucks more in the coffer. It's, It's not because he cared for the poor, that's what it says. Verse 6, he said this not because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. (laughs) That's pretty blatant. Judas, one of the twelve, was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. See, some say that he was just greedy, therefore he, he handed Jesus over for 30 pieces of silver. But if you do your research, 30 pieces of silver really wasn't that much money. I mean, it really wasn't. It was the cost of one slave. And in the grand scheme of things, I mean, if you were going to do something this grandiose, you'd probably ask for more than 30 pieces of silver. I think if Judas was going to do this for greedy reasons, I think he would have worked out a better deal. Well, others say not only was he a hypocrite, or maybe he was greedy, but some people say that Judas was just impatient. 
He was just impatient. And this is a very interesting group of people that believe this because they actually believe that Judas was a believer. That he believed that Jesus was the Messiah and that Jesus was sent from heaven to rescue Israel and to die for the people of God to forgive their sins. They say he, he believed, but he was just growing impatient on waiting for Jesus to do his thing, to get the job done. So he wanted to force his hand. He wanted to put Jesus in a position where he had to show his power, where he had to show his glory. He was tired of waiting. He wanted him to really show everyone who he really was. I think that's the weakest position personally. And I don't think it was any three of those, frankly. You say, okay, Mr. Smarty Pants, who do you think? Well, what was his motive? You're so smart. Now, it's not that I'm so smart. All you have to do is read the Bible. John 6, 64 tells us exactly why Judas did what he did. It tells us exactly Judas's motive. Verse 64, Jesus says, but there are some of you who do not believe. What was Judas's motive? He did not believe. He was not a believer. It continues, it says, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. He knew exactly what was going on in the heart of Judas. He knew exactly that he did not believe. That word believe means simply this, to rely upon. It means to completely surrender to. Jesus is telling his disciples, there is one of you here who has not completely relied upon me, who has not completely surrendered to me. There is one among us who has not believed. This is the same word believe that we use when we talk about salvation. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that what? That whosoever believes, same word. Whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life see whoever believes in him is the same word whoever completely surrenders to whoever completely relies upon you could say you could say this whoever completely puts his full weight on that's the idea when you came in here today and you were going to sit down in your chair i did not see any of you take the chair and Test it, look at it, kind of inspect it. No, you just plopped yourself down, full weight on that chair. Why? Because you had faith that that chair would hold you. You believed. You trusted it. You put your full weight on it. This is what the Lord Jesus Christ requires of us. To believe. Whoever does this with their life, whoever puts all of their hope, all of their dreams, all of their future plans, whoever puts everything on Christ, the Bible says they will be, what? Saved. They will be saved. And what Jesus here is saying is that one of you, one of the 12, has not done this. One of the 12 has not completely relied upon Completely trusted in, completely surrendered to, 
Well, who's he talking about? We know who he's talking about. He's talking about Judas. Judas did not believe. Down deep in his core, he did not believe who Jesus was. He did not believe that Jesus was God. He did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah that the Old Testament predicted. And so what? He did what he did. He betrayed the Son of God. Now granted, he was impatient, but that was because he didn't believe. He was greedy, but that was because he didn't believe. He was a hypocrite because he didn't believe. See, that's, it all comes down to unbelief, beloved. Unbelief is really the root of all sin. That's the power that unbelief has. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, Paul points this out. He says, in their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers. Their minds are blinded to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I mean, think of all the things that that Judas experienced in the presence of Christ for three years. He witnessed it firsthand. And yet, the scripture says that he was blinded to it. Now, I'd like to think if I saw Lazarus come out of the grave and be raised from the dead, I, I would believe that Jesus was who he said he was. Or I'd like to think that if, if, if somehow I could have been there when he took a little Happy Meal and he, he fed over 5,000 people, right? Five loaves and a couple of loaves of bread, or five loaves and two fish. I mean, think of all the incredible things that Jesus did while he was here on earth. And he did it in front of his disciples. He did it in front of Judas. The power of unbelief is so true because the God of this world, the God of the world's philosophies, has blinded the eyes. And that's why people don't believe. Their eyes need to be opened. Now, every day we have miracles happen to us all around us. This morning in our worship, we were reading a psalm, and it talked about miracles like the sun rising. I mean, it's amazing if you think about that. Every, every morning it happens. Well, there's a God behind all this that creates order. And yet we, so many times, have been blinded. Unbelievers have been blinded by the enemy. Well, here's a fact that we should never, ever forget and we should never ignore. Never forget this, never ignore this. It's simply this, every person is either a sellout of Christ or sold out for Christ. Every single person is either sold out for Christ or a sellout of Christ. There's no middle ground. So this morning, my prayer, my hope has been that you will not allow this morning just to go by. Just another Sunday, come and listen to a message and sit in your seat and hear someone preach and sing them songs and have some fellowship and eat some lunch and go home without ever even evaluating your heart or your life. 
Ask yourself the question. Are you a sellout or are you sold out for Jesus Christ? See, only you know, this is something that's only between you and God, where your life stands. But let me tell you, I I firmly believe this. It's possible, it's very possible to be in church every week, to be in church every Wednesday night for Bible study, come to the women's Bible studies, the men's Bible studies. It's very possible, just like Judas, and still not be connected to Christ. That's who he was. That's the deal he made. Look at, thirdly, the invitation that he rejected. The invitation he rejected. Verse 20, when it was evening, he reclined at the table with the twelve. And as they were eating, he said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sorrowful, and they began to say to him, one after the other, Is it I? This word here is very interesting, the word betray. It literally means to switch hands. That's what it means. It means to switch hands. And you say, well, what does that mean? It means, here, you know what? I want to give you something. I want to give you some love. I want to give you some trust, uh, mercy, grace. Here you go. Just take it. And the moment you lower your defense and you reach out to take my hand, I withdraw it and I stab you in the back with my other hand. That's literally what betrayal means. It's backstabbing. See, that's why betrayal hurts so bad. Because it's an attack from close range. I believe it was Ben Franklin who said, God, defend me from my friends. From my enemies, I can defend myself. There's a lot of truth to that. Or Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, wrote this. None are such real enemies as false friends. None are such enemies as false friends. See, you can only truly experience true betrayal from someone who is really close to you. I believe maybe some of you here this morning, that that resonates with you. You understand what I mean by that because... You've been betrayed somewhere in life. And I want you to know here this morning that I hope that you will hear today that Jesus knows how you feel. He knows exactly how you feel. Because he was betrayed. And that's why he's considered as our high priest. The Bible says that in all ways he was tempted like we He's gone through all things that we've experienced. Therefore, he can sympathize with us. He can empathize with us. He knows how we're feeling about life. That's why he says, turn to me, and I will care for you because I know exactly what's going on in your heart. I know exactly how you have been ill-treated. I mean, that's the great high priest that we have. And so Jesus announces that one would betray him, and they all start questioning him. Is it I, Lord? Is it me? Is it me? I mean, I know myself. Maybe it's me. 
That's, that's all the disciples are asking that question. And if you look previously in the gospel accounts, you'll find out that earlier in the day, this same group of 12 were arguing. They were arguing about who was the greatest among them. And now they have a completely different argument going on. Who's the worst? His eye must be me. Who's the vilest among us, Lord? I mean, have you ever been there in life? You know, you kind of flip-flop. You think, wow, man, God is blessing me, and I'm growing, and things are going so wonderful. This is incredible. And then, boom, something happens. <laughs> a trial, a tribulation, a sin, whatever it might be. And all of a sudden, you, you feel in the depth of your heart, man, I am the worst of the worst. You know, you go from one extreme to the other. That's what you have going on here. They were arguing about who was the greatest, and now they began questioning the Lord, well, who among us is the vilest? And Matthew had already cued us in that Jesus was talking directly about Judas Iscariot. But it still boggles my mind that no one else in the group stood out. They were all asking the question, is it me? They weren't pointing their finger at Judas. Now, remember the setting for a Passover dinner. Usually they would recline here around the table in the Passover meal, the Jewish holiday. Jesus is transforming it. He's transforming it into what we call the Lord's Supper, communion time. Isn't it interesting that at communion time, specifically, we are asked to examine ourselves before we take of these elements? We ask you to examine your own heart before God. If there's something awry there, then straighten it out. You go to God. If, if you confess your sins, he's faithful and just. Forgive your, your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And so before we eat and we drink of the body of Christ, we want to, that what represents the body of Christ, we want to make sure that we examine ourselves. 2 Corinthians 13, 5. Examine yourselves to see if you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Or do you not realize this about yourselves, that Jesus is in you, unless indeed you fail to meet the test? See, we're to examine our hearts and our lives. And on the first Sunday of the month, we have communion, and so we use this as a regular time of examination. Why? Because we don't want to take the Lord's Supper like Judas did. We don't want to be a hypocrite. Saying one thing on the outside, but plotting something else on the inside. I mean, what was Judas saying? Yes, I'm a believer. I'm following Christ. I believe that he's the Messiah. I believe that he's the one who's going to rescue the world. But on the inside, what's he doing? He's plotting. He's plotting to betray the Son of God. Now, it's not just during communion time that we should be examining our hearts. This is something we should do on a regular basis as Christians, daily, hourly, if need so. And this examination, for those who have trusted Christ, is not a question of whether you're saved or not. We're not telling you to doubt your salvation. But we're telling you to affirm that you are saved. That you are forgiven that you're walking with Christ and that you're believing, you're resting in and fully surrendering to who Jesus is. That's the idea here. Now please understand, Judas looked exactly like the other 11. 
Matter of fact, even in Acts chapter 1, it seems to indicate that he must have even been baptized by John the Baptist. Some people say, you know, are you a believer? Oh, yeah, yeah, I've been baptized. I covered, got that covered. <laughs> well, Judas was baptized. Even more than that, and, and maybe even shockingly so, if you stop and think about it, Judas was part of the group that, that Jesus, um, with that baptism, he probably even made a, a public confession. It's probably what he did. That was part of the process of being baptized. You make a public def- a profession of Christ. I believe that he's the one. He's the Messiah. Yes, he is. He heard all the, the same messages that everybody else heard. He saw all the same miracles. He participated in all the same ministries. Think about that as the other disciples. What did Jesus give to the disciples? The Bible says that he gave them the power and the authority over demons. He gave them the power and the authority to cure diseases. He sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God, the gospel, and to heal people even. Judas healed people. Think about that. Wow. He preached the gospel. He cast out demons. I mean, if there was ever an external work that you could plant the flag of salvation on, it would be casting out demons, right? You probably, if you saw somebody cast out a demon, you would probably say, well, he must be a believer to be able to do something like that. Yet not one of those things, healing the sick, casting out demons, preaching the gospel, Guaranteed that he was saved, nor that he was spiritually healthy. I mean, how many of us plant our flag of salvation in such lesser works than that? Say, thing, well, you know, I go to church at least you know, two or three times a month, I try to read my Bible when I can. I try to do this, I try to do that. I'm telling you, when it comes to Judas, most of us haven't done anything. (laughs) Judas did far more than we could ever even dream of doing. But here's the thing. What it's all about, it's not about your work. It's not about what you do. There's nothing we can do. These are things that are just evidence that something has been done to us. But they are not necessarily the assurance of salvation. They are not the avenue in which we are saved and forgiven by doing these things. That is only through Christ and Christ alone. So for three years, he's doing this. (laughs) Three years, he's healing the sick. He's preaching the gospel, casting out demons. He's been baptized. He's made a public profession. So many times people, well, I made a public profession, Pastor. When? Well, when I was in Sunday school, when I was three. Who cares? Judas made a public profession. 
There's going to be people that stand before the Lord one day, Matthew 7, right? Say, Lord, Lord, haven't we done this? Haven't we done that? And what is his answer going to be to them? Depart from me. I don't even know who you are. That's frightening. See, the Bible calls Judas a terror. A terror, not a terror. That's your kids when they're little, right? It's little terrors, you know. No, not a terror, a terror. T-A-R-E. Well, what is a, a tear? A tear is a plant that grows with wheat. It looks like wheat, and when it blossoms, it even blossoms like wheat. It flowers like wheat. As a matter of fact, unless you really knew what you were doing, you couldn't be able to tell them apart. But eventually, that tear will grow up and strangle the true wheat. It will kill the crop. And Jesus tells us that within the church, there's wheat, the true crop, but there are also within the church people that the Bible calls tares. I mean, do you ever wonder why churches struggle so much? <laughs> why within churches people struggle so much to get along? There's difficulties. A lot of times there's turmoils. It seems like most churches just can't get it together. Well, a lot of reason is because it's not just all wheat. There are some tares sprinkled in amongst the wheat. There are people who profess one thing, and those people look like us. They look like they believe. They even act like they believe. They may even serve like they believe. But guess what? In their heart of hearts, they don't believe. Because that root down deep inside of them does not really rely upon, depend upon, trust fully in Christ himself and not themselves, eventually it comes out. Eventually. And when the tear comes out, it wreaks havoc It wreaks havoc in the world, but it also wreaks havoc right here in the church. Look at what happens in verse 23. He answered, he who has dipped his hand in the dish with me will betray me. The Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Judas who would betray him, answered, Is it I, Rabbi? And he said, You have said so. There's no greater passage, I believe, than the one before us that talks about the sovereignty of God and yet the responsibility of man. It's right there in front of us. You have Judas, who from Scripture was prophesied of, predicted that he would one day betray Christ. And yet Jesus seems to indicate here that he absolutely chose this and he is responsible. Jesus isn't telling Judas, oh, I'm so sorry, Judas. This is the way it played out. Sorry. (laughs) No. He's responsible. So much so that it would have been better for him to have not even been born at all. You have the sovereignty of God. God says this is going to happen. Not only that, he says this is how it's going to happen. But Jesus says Judas chose this. 
And he's going to go throughout all of eternity, wish he had never been born. Now, before you think that Jesus is being too harsh here, understand, what did Jesus just do? He just washed Judas's feet. An act of service. Notice where Judas is sitting. Here at the table. It doesn't exactly tell us, but we can conjecture that he was right next to Jesus. Because at the Passover meal, there are bowls that you take your bread and you dip it in. And they don't have a bowl for everybody. You just use the bowl that is right in front of you and the person next to you uses it as well. And Jesus says, the one who dips in the bowl with me, in other words, he's sitting right here, Do you know what an honor that would have been for someone at a Passover meal to sit next to the rabbi, to sit next to the teacher? That's a great honor. This is not a seat that you chose for yourself. This is a seat that was chosen for you. This seat chosen right next to Jesus wasn't something that Judas chose. As a matter of fact, I can only imagine he probably felt a little uncomfortable. It's almost as if Jesus is giving Judas one more glimpse at his divinity. One more opportunity to turn. One more opportunity to make a different decision. I mean, what kind of love does that? Even to the very end. Look at what he says. He says, hey, come and do what you came for. And what's he say? Friend. He calls Judas his friend. I mean, I don't know about you, but by that time, putting up with this for three plus years, Knowing what he was doing, knowing what was in his heart, knowing what was coming down the road. I had served you, I loved you, I washed your dirty feet. I put you right here at a place of honor next to me at the meal. And you're still going to go through with this? I don't think I can call you a friend. That's exactly Jesus' last words, friend, do what you've come for, friend. See, this is an invitation that Jesus offered up until the end. But what did Judas do? Judas said, no thanks. No thanks. Payday's coming. 30 pieces of silver will be mine. Can you imagine that even today and for all eternity, Jesus is repeating for all eternity this same scenario that we're reading about? He's replaying it in his mind. He's thinking about what he could have done differently what he should have done differently. But now it's too late. 
Well, the last thing I want us to see here is not just the person he was, the deal that he made, the invitation he rejected, but lastly, the eternity he chose. The eternity he chose. Look at verse 47. While he was still speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, and with him a great crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now the betrayer had been given them, had given them a sign. So he said, hey, here's how it's going to go down. I'm going to, I'm going to do this. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him. And he came up to Jesus at once and said, Greetings, Rabbi. And he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come to do. Whoa, he's betrayed by a kiss. By a kiss. What's a kiss? A kiss is a a sign of, of, of friendship, a sign of love, a sign of intimacy, of devotion. And because Judas is so blinded in his sin, he uses it as a sign of betrayal. If you look in the original language here, when it says he kissed him, the word is katafileo, and it means that he kissed him over and over and over and over again. He put it on thick, laid it on thick. He's the guy. He just kept kissing him. Proverbs 27, 6 says, Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. Picture it externally. Rabbi, so good to see you. I've been looking everywhere for you. What are you doing? Kiss, 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 kiss. Let me give you a hug. Kiss, 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 kiss. Big smile. A grin on his face. But he had death on his lips. He used a kiss as a death mission. If you look down a little further in the passage, 27 verse 3, it says, Then Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned. He changed his mind, it says in verse 3. And he brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and to the elders. Listen to what Judas says. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. You think? And they said, what is this to us? See to it yourself. In other words, we don't care. We got what we wanted. Leave us alone. Verse 5, throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed. See that? doesn't really play along with the motive of his greed. If he was a greedy man, he wouldn't just dispose of this. He would have kept it. It was of no value to him. He departed and he went and he hanged himself. The son of praise becomes the son of perdition. A life of praise turned to a life of waste. Now, in this passage, we definitely see remorse, right? I mean, I think his remorse is genuine. I really do. I don't think he was play-acting here. I think he was sorry for what he had done. We see that. But what don't we see? We don't see repentance. We don't see repentance. Repentance is is a turning. I mean... Remorse is the first step 
you might say, of repentance. It's feeling bad. It's, it's having, I grew up in a Catholic church, they said having contrition, right, for your sins. Recognizing that it's wrong. Recognizing that it's sin. Remorse is part of repentance, and it's absolutely necessary. If repentance is going to be real and from the heart, remorse is a part of it. But what the word repentance literally means, beloved, is that you literally go in an opposite direction from where you were going. It means to turn around, to do a 180. If I was heading to Half Moon Bay this afternoon on Highway 92 and I repented, guess what I would do? I would turn my vehicle around and I would come back to Redwood City. True repentance wouldn't be, well, yeah, you know, I really feel bad about going to Half Moon Bay. You know, I mean, left my wife at home and I'm going to have a fun time over in Half Moon Bay. I just feel, feel bad about that, but I'm still going to go. Well, that's not being repentant. When you repent, you turn around and you come back. Look at Judas. Where was he going? He was, he was headed directly away from the cross. He was headed in the total opposite direction of Christ. And then he felt bad for what he had done. He realized, eh, this is a mistake. But what does he do? Does he turn around? Repentance would mean that. He's walking directly away from Jesus. If he repented, what would it look like? He would turn around and head straight back to Jesus. There's a lot of speculation. A lot of people believe that Benny Hinn, who we would consider a false teacher of the word and faith movement, that Benny Hinn repented, quote, he said this about a year and a half ago, that God showed him that... the. Health and wealth and all having all this money was not the way to go, so he repented. And everybody said, well, did he repent? I don't think so. How would you know if he repented? He would go on one of his broadcasts and say, you know what, I'm a sham. I took advantage of you. I ripped you off. I wasn't praying for those prayer requests. I was just taking the checks out of the envelopes to buy my millions of houses that I have and jets and all kinds of things. And you know what? I could never repay everybody that I ripped off. But you know what? God showed me that this is wrong and I'm going to stop everything. And I have to find a good Bible teaching church and I need to grow in my walk with the Lord. Does he do that? No. Does Judas do that? No. What does Judas try to do? He tries to make up for his mistake. <laughs> He's convicted, no doubt. But what does he do? He tries to make up for his own mistake. He doesn't turn around and go back to Jesus and humble himself. See, this is what's needed for salvation. Coming to church is not going to save you. Taking communion is not going to save you. Getting baptized is not going to save you. What's going to save you is when you humble yourself and you admit before a holy God, you know what? I have sinned. I am a fool. I repent. I turn to you. My source of forgiveness. Because I need to be reconciled to my God. And the Bible says the only way to come back to the Father is through the Son. There's only one mediator between God and man. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm tired of trying to do this on my own. That's what true repentance looks like. But he doesn't do that. He tries to fix a mistake himself. 
He concludes, you know what, I'm going to take care of this. I'm going to handle this. It would be too humiliating to go back to Jesus and admit that I was wrong and that I betrayed him. I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to go back to Jesus and say that I've sinned and I'm a fool and I really now believe who you said you were. I'm going to fix this. He doesn't say stop all the madness, stop the crucifixion, stop what you're doing, stop the arrest of Jesus, stop the court proceedings, stop all of that. This is all a sham. He even throws the money that, by the way, must have been burning a hole in his hand. You know, when you take something that's not yours, I mean, it just, it's, it's, it doesn't feel good. It doesn't feel right. It's not right. It's burning a hole. They were like hot coals that he was holding in his hand. And he throws them back into the temple. He does all those things, but what he didn't do is he didn't repent. How many of us feel bad for some things that we've done? But not really bad enough to go and humble ourselves before a holy God. To admit and say, hey, you know what? I am such a sinner. I, I so need your grace. I so need your love and your mercy. We don't do that. What do we try to do? We try to fix it ourselves. We conclude in our mind somehow that, you know what? I'm just going to go to church more often. <laughs> I'm going to try to go to Bible study more often. I'm going to try to pray longer and read the Bible more. And I'm going to try to be a better neighbor, maybe a better spouse, maybe a better son or daughter. I'm going to fix this. What we're trying to do is fix our problems ourselves. And God says, that's not going to work. That's not repentance. The worst thing that Judas did was not... Betray Jesus. The worst thing that Judas did was not that he betrayed Jesus. I want you to hear this. The reason that Judas will spend eternity, all eternity, separated from God's love in hell, yet under his righteous wrath and under his righteous judgment, is not because he betrayed Jesus. It's because he refused to believe in Jesus. It's because he refused to repent and be forgiven because of Jesus. You might ask, would God have forgiven him? Had he repented? Without question, absolutely. You say, wait a minute. Wait, how can you say that? Well, what did all the other disciples do within hours? What did they do? They abandoned Jesus. They all left him. Not just Judas. Judas betrayed him. But they abandoned him. That's kind of a sense of betrayal. But eventually, you know what happened after the resurrection? They came right back to the Lord. They did repent. They came back and they said, you know what? We were wrong. We're sorry. Peter was grieved that he denied the Lord. We were wrong and we know that you are who you said you were. Please forgive us. To the degree that, you know what? We're going to give the rest of our lives serving you. Because we feel so bad 
over abandoning you, Christ, at your time of most need. And we're going to even die in service for you. See, it's not the type of sin that gets people into trouble. It's not the kind of sin that gets people in trouble. It's rejecting the only cure that's available for it. There is no sin that God won't readily forgive you of except that which is rejecting his son. Because it's the only possible way to be saved. When you stop and really think about it, it's incredible to me that people go to hell unsaved. People go to hell unsaved, but you know what? Nobody, nobody goes to hell unloved. Judas was a prime example of that. Jesus loved him to the very end. Yes, he went to hell unsaved, but he didn't go to hell unloved. But for all eternity, Judas will regret that he was ever born. I want to ask you this morning, where do you stand? Where do you stand in reference to Christ? We see that Jesus was betrayed for us today. Let's make sure that we don't betray him. Father, we pray that as we prepare our hearts for our communion time this morning, that you would do a work in our hearts and our minds that only you can do. You know, even now, the status of our souls. You know each one of us. You see it clearly as can be imagined. You know the wheat. And you know the terrors that are amongst us. You know those who are authentic. And you know those who are hypocrites. Lord, I thank you that you make a way for all of us. Because we all start as rebels. We all start as hypocrites, as broken sinners. You've made a way through your son, the Lord Jesus Christ, if we will humble ourselves, if we will trust in him, if we will believe in him, if we will rely on him, if we will throw the full weight of our sin on our Savior, he will be our Savior, he will be our Lord, he will be our King, our Master forever. And you will welcome us into your family. Lord, I pray that we would not be like Judas Someone that looks great on the outside, but are dead on the inside. May you do a work in us, even as we consider our communion time here this morning. And as we leave this place, I pray that we would leave different than when we came in. We ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.